Boker Tov and good morning to all. Thank you for joining us for our weekly review and study of the Parsha. We have the privilege of studying Parsha's Naso, Eretz Yisrael, the Jews, our brothers and sisters in Israel, and we, sorry, the microphone, are now a little bit off. We are uh, a Parsha behind again, thanks to the holiday of Shavuos. I want to thank our generous sponsors, dear friends Becky and Avi Katz and family. We sponsored the Parsha Shir in memory of Becky's father, David Grossman, Lila Nishmas, David ben Menachem Manish, who's Neshama, Shanab and Aliyah, through their amazing work, generosity, and friendship. We got an action-packed Parsha. Nasso has so much in it. We have the census, and we have the story of the Sota, and we have the story of the Nazir, and we have the story of Birchas Kawanim, and we have Meila, and we have so much in it. So we got a lot of ground to cover, and uh, stay with me for this ride. It's in the Art Scroll Stone Chumash, Parsha's Naso, on page 748. And the Parsha begins, really where last Parsha, I don't want to say left off, but last Parsha began, namely with the question of a census, of a count, to determine the number of the Jewish people. And Rashi here says, The purpose of the census in last week's Parsha was to determine the manpower to serve in the military, the army, the Jewish people were going to conquer the land. It was also an expression of Chiba, of Hashem's love, His affection for us. We know that we count what we are affectionate for, we count what we love and what we're affectionate about. And uh, in our parsha, the count is not because of military preparation, the count is for the service in the Mishkan, the service in the Beis HaMikdash. In order to perform the Avodah, Hashem was taking account. What did the staff look like? How many would be available? How many would serve? That is how our parsha begins. Nasas Rosh B'nei Gershon Ganheim, B'nei Merari L'Meshpechosam, and so on. Bring your attention to Perak Dalad, Pasuk Chaf Dalad. Perak Dalad, the beginning of our parsha, Pasuk Chaf Dalad. Zos avodas meshpechos ha-gershuni, la-avod u-lemasa. This is the work of the family of Gershon, to work and to carry. That was their mission, that was their mandate. To work and to carry. Rabbi Salavechik and the Rav Chumash makes a very astute observation here. And he says, later in the parsha we're going to learn about the gifts of the Nesim. The end of our parsha is the repetitive, redundant, uh, to a degree difficult to continue to read. We're familiar with it from Hanukkah reading of the Nesim, the princes of the 12 tribes, each offered up the exact same karbon to Hashem. The only thing difference was their intent, their motivation, their mindfulness, their mentality, while they brought it. So each of those gifts of the Nesim were brought, they included wagons. The Pasuk says in Perak Zion, Pasuk Gimel, the Pasuk says they brought their offerings before Hashem, six covered wagons, twelve oxen, a wagon for each two leaders. The wagons were part of that offering. The wagons were part of that avoda. Moshe gave the covered wagons and the oxen to Gershon and Merari for transportation of the Mishkan. However, he did not give wagons and oxen to the sons of Kahas, because the holy ark was to be borne upon their shoulders, not placed upon wagons. So the Rav notes in the beginning of our parsha that Gershon got wagons to make their job easier. They had to transport the Mishkan. 
the, uh, the curtains of the Mishkan and the planks of the walls of the Mishkan and the utensils of the Mishkan were all very heavy. So the most efficient way to be able to transport them and carry them through their journey in the desert in the Midbar was on wagons. Gershon were given wagons. Kahas, on the other hand, were not given wagons. Why not? They too had a sacred uh, task, a sacred service. They were carrying not the elements of the Mishkan, they were carrying the Aron, the Ark that held the broken tablets, the whole tablets, the Mon, the first Sefer Torah, the Holy Ark, the Holy Aron. Why weren't they given a wagon? Because in fact it was so holy that it was not carried on a wagon. It was not transported in the, in the bed of a flatbed truck. Where was it transported? On their very shoulders. What's the significance? Why does Rabbi Salavit draw, draw our attention to this? Because back in Sefer Bereshis, he tells us that Yaakov's family was transported to Egypt. How? In wagons, drawn by oxen, in the same way the Mishkan was transported by the children of Gershon and Merari. So, there's a parallel. How did Yaakov's family descend? How did they come down to Egypt? They came down on wagons that were, uh, that were transported, that were dragged by, led by oxen. However, Yaakov's wagon was carried directly by his children, not by oxen. Moving Yaakov was a holy service akin to the bearing of the ark. No matter how sacred the tablets in the ark, they were nevertheless made of stone. Yaakov was a living, sacred being. Hashem's word was part of Yaakov's personality engraved not on a dead matter, but on a living tissue. If the stone tablets were not to be carried by oxen, then the living tablets certainly must not be carried this way either. A very beautiful insight that the Rav has, that just like there was a difference in our parsha between the Aron, which was carried on their shoulders to show the love, the respect, the affection, as opposed to the other elements of the Mishkan, so too Yaakov's children could be carried, transported by oxen, leading wagons, but Yaakov himself was transported on a wagon that was carried by his family, because Yaakov was a living Sefer Torah. He was a living Aron, living Luchos. The Gemara says, how foolish, those who stand for a Sefer Torah, how foolish those who honor a cloth and dio, the parchment and the ink, and yet mistreat a fellow Jew, fail to honor Kavadat Torah, Tzadikim and Tzidkanios, Tamidei Chachamim, Tamidei Chachamos, who fail to respect and honor those who live and who embody and who represent the Torah. And that's one of the ideas evidenced here in the beginning of our Parsha. Moving right along. The completion of the census, the parasha moves on. Gershon's responsibility, Merari's responsibility, and then the totals that are given, so that HaKadosh Baruch Hu knew, even though he knew without the census, but we would know, feel his love for the fact that he counted us and he made each one feel counted, as we spoke about in last week's parasha. This is why Sefer Bamidbar is called by our rabbi, Sefer HaPikudim. Sefer HaPikudim, the book of countings, because we have these censuses throughout. We have the counting, we have the acknowledgement, the recognition. As we mentioned last week, the purpose of a census is not merely to arrive at a number. The Rebona Shalom is omnipotent and infinite. He knew the number long before we started counting. We, didn't, uh, we weren't taking a demographic study. Kodesh Baruch Hu is the ultimate demographer. So what is the goal of the census? Each one would pass before Moshe and Aaron, the Ramban says, and they would feel counted. They knew their role. They weren't invisible or inconsequential. They didn't blend in together, but everyone made a difference and everyone would matter. And that's the notion of pikudim. It's called not the book of, of minyanim, of countings, not the book of lispor to count. It's called the book of pikudim, 
Why? Like the Pasuk Vashem Pakada Sarah, Hashem remembered Sarah. The reason to count is to remember, is to acknowledge, is to review, is to be, is to be excited. So the parasha here begins, first we did the rest of the Jewish people, and here we have Levi, and why was Levi separated out? We've spoken about previously a beautiful insight of Rechaim Shmolevitz. I refer you to Sichas Musser. Why couldn't God include Levi in the same census as the rest of the Jewish people and simply know which tribe had which number? Why did Levi need to be sectioned out? I refer you, we've spoken about it in the past in the Parsha camp. Parsha class. We move over to the purification of the of the camp. Here our parsha gives us something unfortunately we become too familiar with. The notion of quarantining, the notion of trying to prevent against contamination, trying to prevent against communal spread. Here it's not of virus or illness. Here it is of not something physical, but something metaphysical, a metavirus. Here it's trying to prevent the spread of tumah, of an impure contamination of values, of ideals, of behaviors, of actions that lead to a sense of tumah. Not necessarily that the Zav did anything wrong, but the tsarua, right? The individual who's struck with tsaraz is struck so because they were arrogant, envious. Chazal give us many reasons, most popular among them. They gossiped, they abused, and they failed to utilize and realize the gift of the power of speech. So here the Torah tells us that our camp has to be holy. And therefore, while we don't discriminate, God forbid we don't discriminate. We love not only all Jews, we love all people who are created B'Tselem Elohim. We don't discriminate, but we have to strike the balance between loving and protecting. And we have to protect against the spread not only of the physical virus, we have to protect against the spread of, of Tumah, of invisible virus, of metaphysical virus, as well. In the next section, Pasuke moves us over to the story of the Sota, the story of the wayward woman, the story of the woman who is warned against secluding, and then she violates that warning and secludes herself with a man not related to her, one of the people she's prohibited to seclude with, and then um, she violates that seclusion, therefore she is accused. She is accused of infidelity. She denies she had any infidelity. She's brought to the Kohen, and she drinks from the Mayim Arim, and either she is rewarded with fertility, or she is punished a graphic, gruesome death. That is the upshot, the quick review of the story of, of the Sota. And we've spoken about this every year, Pasha. It's not so different insights into it. Isha, Isha, Kiyasumi, Kochatos, Adam, Lim, O Ma'al, Bashem. Ish, O Isha, a man or a woman who uh, violates Lim'o Ma'al, performs Me'ilo, we'll come back to it in a moment. I'm sorry, I skipped ahead. Not up to the Sota yet. First we have the story of theft from a Jew and a proselyte. Isha, Isha, Kiyasu, Mikolchatos. Somebody who performs a Me'ila by stealing, by stealing from a, uh, uh, a proselyte. His vadu is also they have to confess their sin and they have to pay a fifth penalty on top of it. And if there's nobody to redeem it, because this individual, this convert, doesn't necessarily have family who could redeem it, then it goes to the Kohen, Malvad El Kippurim, and so on that the parsha tells us. Here, theft from a Jew and theft from a proselyte. Rabbi Soloveitchik has a critically important insight here. And the Rav says the following. Oh, 
The concept of ownership as it applies to man differs fundamentally from how it applies to God. If an object belonged to someone, he can grant permission for others to use it. In the case of items that belong to God, however, another factor comes in play. The object is consecrated, is hectish. So what I own, or what I own in partnership, although a limited and junior partnership with Hashem, you could borrow my car, you could borrow my pencil, you could borrow even my tefillin. But that which belongs to hectish, that which belongs to the domain of the holy, to the Mishkan, to the Beis HaMikdash, has been consecrated towards God. I have no ownership stake in. I'm not entitled to lend. The use of a dative case in the phrase of Lashem Ha'aretzum La'ah, to God is the earth and its fullness, instead of the possessive, the earth and its fullness are God's, signifies that Hashem not only owns the world, but that the world is consecrated to Him. Note the grammatical construction says the Rav Lashem Ha'aretz Umla'ah is similar to the standard formula for consecrating an animal, Lashem Chatas. And here's the point, listen carefully. When one sins, when one makes a mistake, he violates the prohibition of Me'ila, of illicit use of consecrated items. Hashem is not only the creator of the universe, He's the master of everything in it, including man. Thus, we say and we plead in Slichos, the soul is yours and the body you're making. Hanasham Allah Va'aguf Pa'alach. Everything in this world belongs to Hashem. Man's power are, so to speak, on loan, temporarily leased by him to God. God endowed man with life for a certain period of time. He allows man ownership over himself for the allotted period. The ownership of man by himself is utilized by the individual in a number of ways, through free choice, the exercise of intellectual powers, potential ability to create, and so on. By sinning, man loses the right and privileges that were given to him. And the Rav goes on here, but briefly the Rav says, the reason we're giving this notion of chait, isho isha kiyasu mikol chatos, Me'ila, making a mistake and violating Hashem's will is described with the language of Me'ila. What is Me'ila? When you have consecrated property, that which is sacred, that which has been dedicated and devoted to the Mishkan of the Beis HaMikdash, and a person uses it. So you have a chair that was donated to the Beis HaMikdash, and then you sit on it? It's not for you to sit on. You can't derive personal benefit from something consecrated to God. So Rabbi Soloveitchik points out that the Torah here in its formulation is teaching us that in fact our time and our energies, our talents and our blessings, all of that are gifts from God. They really belong to Him. They are on loan to us. But really they're His. Really they belong to Him. And when we misdirect them, when we misuse them, and when we abuse them, we are violating no less me'ila. So just as I sit in a chair that was dedicated to the temple, I have violated something consecrated to God, so too my talents, my skills, my gifts, my blessings, my resources, my time, it is all a gift from God on loan to me, and if I misuse it, abuse it, if I, uh, if I channel it towards my own personal pleasure, instead of using it in the fulfillment of God's mission for me here in the world, that too is a form of me'ila, that too is a violation of God. Okay, but let's go back to... As we started to talk about the case of the Soto, the wayward woman. With the same language of Mi'ila, which we'll get to in a moment. But the story of the Sota is introduced with the words, the redundancy. Ish, Ish. A man whose wife will go astray. She will be distracted. She will go astray. Ish, Ish. Why does it have the word Ish twice? Says Rashi, Rashi tells us why ish, ish, the redundancy, to teach us that a man of, of war above and the, and the woman below. What does this mean? So commentators have explained. You know what drove this woman? Not that there's ever an excuse, not that it's ever defendable, not that it's ever okay, but what drove this woman is because he was ish, ish. He dominated. He tried to minimize or marginalize her. 
She didn't have a role in her marriage, and therefore she was driven. Ish, ish. He too is to blame. In a case where uh, she wasn't respected and wasn't recognized, again, it's intolerable, it's unacceptable, and one should never defend such behavior. But sometimes in a case like this, it reveals an inherent flaw or deficiency or challenge within the marriage that needs to be addressed and needs to be corrected. And some of the commentators say that is included, implicit in the words ish, ish. Why the double language? Because he exerted himself, his power, his control too much in such a way that ultimately, not that it is okay, but drove her in that, in that direction. We've studied this section many times in the past, each year in the Pasha, but I want to share with you a new insight this year, and it's based on the teachings of Rav Hirsch. My dear friend Rav Mendi, who loves to send me svarim, and I'm so grateful to him for that. And that's not a, a hint for more. Baruch Hashem, my bookcases are full, and i got to learn what I've got. But send me a beautiful sefer. Be'ikvos perish hagon Rav Shimshon Rafal Hirsch al HaTorah. This took the commentary of Rav Hirsch on the Torah and tried to extract Rav Hirsch's beautiful gems uh, on the Parsha. And here he has an essay, Kedushas HaNesuin Veromen Musam, that the theme of Rav Hirsch's commentary on the part of the story of the Sota, the theme that drives Rav Hirsch's commentary, and I want to summarize it for you from this beautiful Sefer, is the notion of the holiness and the sanctity of a Jewish marriage. The institution of Jewish marriage is not casual. We're not flippant. It's not something which is uh, disposable or dispensable, but it's something which is sacred. It's something which is cherished. It's something which is the ultimate role and realm of holiness. It's not that holiness and righteousness are reserved for the shul and in the home as a place that we're casual in our attitude, in our conduct, in the way we speak, in the way we behave, in our interactions. The home is the holiest place in the Jewish community. It's holier than the shul and than the base medrash. We've been proving that these last three months when we've been transforming our homes into miniature shuls and miniature bate medrash. The reason that the mikvah is the place of the community, that when you start a Jewish community, or if you have limited resources in a Jewish community, they should be channeled first into building the mikvah before any other institution, is because mikvah taras hamishpacha, the mishpacha, the family unit, the health of a marriage, is the greatest, is the most sacred deserves the most attention, is critically important, and the theme of Rav Hirsch's commentary all throughout this section all reinforces that. Let me share it with you here. Number one, The Parsha is teaching us that you want to find God, you know where He can be found? Yes, in Shul, and yes, in your Tehillim, and yes, in the Beis Medrash, and yes, in your Daf Yomi, and your Shas, and your Nach Yomi, and your Mishnabur Yomi, and every Yomi you could think of. Of course, the Kaddish Baruch Hu, the Almighty, the Shechina, the Divine Presence and Countenance can be found there. But you know where He is found most intensely? In the kind of conversation a husband and wife have. The kind of respect, the kind of spirit of partnership that they have. The kind of mutual um, connection that they have. Shechina Shorah Babayis HaYehudi. The, the, the marriage ideal is holy. There's a third partner who is present. We know when a man and a woman merit Hashem's name, the, the Aleph and Shin are the same, but the Yud and the Hey change. That's Hashem's name. So when a husband and wife learn to speak respectfully, when a husband and wife share similar ideals to build a home that is founded on Jewish values, a home that is all about caring about others and all about spreading the light of Torah and all about righteousness and justice. When they build such a home, Kriyash Baruch Hu is present. He's there. Not only as much as he's in the shul of the Beis Medrash, even more. Of course, if they don't, if they fight and debate and compete 
and marginalize and bicker and don't reinforce the best in one another, but draw out the worst, then, Eish Ochlam, then you have the Aleph and Shin, there is no Yud and no hay, and a fire consumes them. And says Rafersh, you see this in Pasuk Parakei, Pasuk Yid Beis, we just read it. The introduction to the beginning of Sota is, Daber Ben Yisrael, Vamarta Alem, Isho Ish Isho Ki Sista Ishto, Umaala Bo Maal. These words Me'ila, what do they mean? We just said in the last section what they meant. Me'ila means a violation of something which is holy, sacred, or consecrated. What is Me'ila? You dedicated that chair to the Beis HaMikdash, to the Mishkan, and now you sit on it. You made a donation to the Beis HaMikdash or Mishkan, and then you derive personal selfish benefit from it. That is Me'ila, says Rav Hirsch. That's why here the Torah describes that a violation of trust in marriage, be it the ultimate violation of infidelity, but it could be a violation of trust in marriage that says, I'm not giving you the access to the bank account. I'm not going to be transparent about our finances. I'm not going to show you trust or transparency in our relationship. I'm not going to communicate respectfully. In whatever way one violates, and one can violate in so many ways, not only the ultimate act of infidelity, but other acts, emotional infidelity, financial infidelity, um, web surfing infidelity. There are other forms of infidelity. They are all ma'alo ba ma'al, says Rav Hirsch. Just like if you violate and for your own personal, personal selfish gain, you utilize something that was dedicated to be sacred and consecrated, you've violated me'ila with a harsh penalty. So too, if you violate your marriage in any form, you have violated me'ila. You're violating something sacred, holy, and consecrated, and there is a harsh penalty. Number one. Number two, nisu in Jewish marriage, what's it called? Kedushin. When a husband and wife, when a bride and a groom stand under the chuppah, it's called kedushin. What is that root of that word kedushin? Kadosh. It is holy what they're about to enter. It's a holy matrimony. It's a holy bond, a holy union, a holy commitment. It is to lead a holy life. It is to achieve holy things. Perachafei pasuk chavches. first points out in this context of the story of the sota. It says, "Ve'imlo nitma'ahi shau tahorahi." What is she called if she violated the trust? If in fact the testing waters prove that she practiced infidelity, she in fact violated her husband's trust, she's called Tamea. She's impure. And if in fact she was reliable and truthful, if indeed she's true to her word, and though she shouldn't have secluded herself, she didn't misbehave or act out within that seclusion, the Torah testifies about her, Utahorahi, she is Tahora says, well, first you see in the very language the Torah uses, pure or impure, that the matter of marriage is not just a bein adam lechavero. It speaks to our own character, our own integrity, our own spirituality, our own spiritual identity. Tamea or tahora is a function of how we behave. Do we flirt? Do we push the boundaries? Do we look at images? Do we violate the trust? Because the attitude we have towards our marriage determines whether it in fact is kadosh. Is it holy? Or is it profane? Are we holy or are we impure? Perakei Pasagidzayin says refers the next manifestation of this philosophy, the next theme in his commentary. It says, The Kohen takes sacred water in an earthenware vessel. And what does he add to this concoction? No bartender knows how to mix this drink, I hope, but this is a very unusual recipe. What does he put in this vessel? An earthenware vessel, and he puts holy water that comes from the kior, and he takes earth. Nobody's asking for that from the bartender. 
Nobody puts that in an ingredient in their mixed drink. He takes earth, and where does he take the earth from? The floor of the Mishkan. And he puts it in the water, shakes it up, puts it in a martini glass, no, no martini glass, but he gives it to the woman to drink from. Vinasan el where does he take it from? The Karka Mishkan. Says Rav Hirsch, HaKohen lokeach afar mikarka Mishkan vinasan elamayim, pu'ula zumas kira leisha tovenes masuris na'ale. This exercise, where the woman is watching the Kohen mix her drink, and take the water of the kior and take the earth, the dirt, the soil from the floor of the Mishkan and mix it together. And what is the message meant to be communicated to her? That gufa arzi amna mekoro me'afar. That she, the physical desire, the physical temptation, the physical appetite, the physical draw, the desire for physical pleasure, physical intimacy, it's natural. It's as natural as the earth and the ground because where do we come from? What are we made up of? We are Minha Afar. We were made from the earth of the ground. So there's a validation taking place. I know you had a legitimate uh, appetite, temptation, desire. I understand where that comes from. But says the Kohen, the same way I'm taking the earth and I'm elevating it and I'm mixing it with this holy water, you have the capacity to elevate that physical desire. You have the capacity to overcome that temptation, to transform and to elevate the base physical, animal part of who you are. That is the very definition of holiness. She's supposed to take that earth. We're all formed and fashioned from the ground. We're made from the same stuff that's going to go in the drink. But we're meant to transform it and to elevate it, not to be brought down or lowered by it. The Gemara in Sota Daf Yudzayin, in fact, teaches us Amar Rava, Mibnei Ma Amra Torah, Havei Afar Lasota. Why? Why does the Torah say that the ingredient for this mixed drink bring earth for the Sota to see? Yotza Mimena Ben Avram. Sorry, Zachsa, because if in fact she was truthful, she will merit Yotza Mimena Ben Avram Ka Avram Avinu. She will have a son. She'll have progeny like Avram. Why Avram? Tichsiv Bey, because the Kapasik says about Avram. Afar ve'efer, that shein kashem sh'avram avinu etzliach lekadesh l'romim is ovdus hayusu nivra me'afar. Avram is this says in Harani, I'm afar ve'efer, I'm ash and dust, and just like Avram took the very physical part of who he was, but elevated it through his mission-driven life, elevated through his quest for holiness, elevated through his spiritual ambition and aspiration. So too that was her mission. That's our job. That marriage is not a platform to pursue physical pleasure alone, there's nothing wrong with it, it's a mitzvah in the context of marriage, but marriage is a platform to achieve holy, noble, spiritual goals and aspirations. And therefore, she violated that, she compromised that, and therefore the offer, this earth, is taken from the, uh, from the ground to remind her that her mission, though she's formed from the offer, is to transform that. Next point Rafersh makes is that where is it taken specifically from the Mishkan? It's not taken from outside the Mishkan. It's taken from inside the Mishkan. Why? Because maybe you'd say, why does the Mishkan have earth at all? The Mishkan is the holiest site in the world. It should be marble and granite and the most beautiful elements. Why is there lowly earth, dirt, soil in the Mishkan that there was to take from it? Shouldn't the floor of the Mishkan be something much more grandiose, much more ostentatious, much more impressive? The answer says, refers us to realize that Everybody has a place in the Mishkan. Not only the lofty and the royal, but even the Afar and the Afer. 
She should never have seen herself as inconsequential, have thought so little of herself, have such low self-esteem, have believed it so doesn't matter what she does because she doesn't matter. Know that even the Mishkan has Afar, even the Mishkan has this, this dust on the ground, and there's no place that anyone is so low. Even the Mishkan is a place for everybody that we matter, that we make a difference. The next point of Hirsch makes is, where is the water brought from? The Kior, the Kior, the, the um, laver, the place where the Kohanim would wash their hands and feet when they entered to be able to perform the avoda. The Kohanim washed their hands and their feet. And it should tell her, you know what? We too, we are a mamleches Kohanim. We don't serve in the Mishkan, but we serve Hashem in this world. And just as they wash their hands and feet, we too have to wash our hands and our feet. It means not only physically to wash them, not only hygienically, and not only spiritually to wash them. To wash means to wash and to watch where we put our hands and where we put our feet. Where do our feet take us and where do our hands lead us? What kind of behavior do we do with them? Just like the Kior elevated and transformed the hands and the feet when a person came in to do the Avoda, so too our mission is to do the Avoda. Our work is to be able to inspire and teach and transform Hashem's world. And she takes this water from the Kior, the mixture she will drink from has water from the Kior because she should be reminded of that message. And next, Rav Hirsch says, the Kior, what was it made from? The Maros Tzvos. Tzvos. It was made from the mirrors. We all know the story. The women d- donated the mirrors they had used to beautify themselves in Egypt. When the men had given up, when the men had said that we no longer believe when the men had said, this world is not worth bringing people into, the women beautified themselves and said, it's not true. This is yet a world which is worthwhile bringing people into. They beautified themselves in the mirrors, and that attracted the men, and that created a continuity and a faith and a future for the Jewish people. These are the mirrors in that kiyor, and that is the kiyor from which this water was drawn. Because why? This woman, this sota, needs to know that her job, her role was that modesty in a Jewish home, appropriateness in a Jewish home, integrity in a Jewish home, honesty in a Jewish home is the source of bracha in our lives. They're just like the women who preserved with a sense of modesty. They donated those mirrors. They knew how to attract their husbands, but they lived with a sense of modesty, and that became the bracha of our continuity, of our redemption and salvation. This woman should know that protecting modesty and protecting uh, holiness is the source of blessing in a Jewish home. And lastly, Rav Hirsch draws us to the Ramban. Listen to what the Ramban writes here about the story of the Sota. The Ramban says, Ein b'chol there's nothing in our entire sacred Torah that depends on a miracle like this story. Normally we're given mitzvos, and they're natural, and they're normative, and we can understand them and associate them in the natural world, among the natural phenomena. Sit in the sukkah, shake a lulav, blow a shofar, light the Hanukkah candles, put on the tefillin, wear the tzitzis, and so on and so forth. And here we have a mitzvah that says, rely on a miracle. This woman is accused, she secluded herself, let her drink this concoction, this mixture, and now sit back and here comes the miracle. If she's innocent, she's going to have a blessing of fertility. And if she's gilding, guilty, she's going to die a gruesome, heinous death. And says the Ramban, This is the only place that we have a miracle, that they could rely on a miracle, that God himself, Kiviyachal, would come down from the heavens, and violate and supersede his rules of nature, and intervene in this world and reveal himself. This is the only place, the only place that we have it. 
Ben kol mishpatei Torah v'chukei rakan beparshaseinu ha'achrat luya benes. Here the outcome depends on a miracle. Bis ravusa yeshira shel Hashem with Hashem mixing in directly. Hadavar mora amuravasa gedol Hashem bis rachish b'bais Yehudi. Why is this the only place says refresh based on the Ramban's observation? Because this is the most sacred. This is the most valuable. This needs to be the most protected institution within the Jewish world. Is our home, are our relationships. It's so critically, critically important. The happiness, the sanctity, the mutual respect, the integrity. It is the most sacred institution that deserves divine protection. And therefore Hashem lets His name get erased. Hashem's name is written on that scroll that goes in that mixed drink and on, on, on that parchment. And Hashem's name gets erased in that mixture. Why? There's a biblical prohibition. We know there's a very strict biblical prohibition to erase Hashem's name, Mechikas Hashem, what we call Shemos. And yet, Hashem lets His name get erased. Why? All in the effort to protect Shalom Bayis. So my friends, how critically important. And this has been a trying time for Shalom Bayis. My wife and I each gave a, a talk, one for men, one for women, on the issue of Shalom Bayis when you can't leave the Bayis during this quarantine. It's a trying time, 24-7. I'm not sure anybody designed marriage, family life, parenting, children, education, to be on top of one another for three months straight with an inability to get oxygen or come up for air. It's a trying time, but it's even more important. This parsha reminds us of the sacred and the sanctity of this institution and how important it is to protect it, to preserve it, and to guard it, to take care of it. Okay, let's keep going. After the story of the Sota, there's much more to talk about, but I wanted to share Rav Hirsch's beautiful theme that permeates throughout his commentary and throughout the section. We move over to the story of Perak Vav, the Nazir. The story of the Nazir. And of course, the Rashi quotes Chazal who tell us, Why do we have the story of the Nazir adjacent? Why is it placed in the Torah, contrasted, juxtaposed directly to the story of the wayward woman, of the woman who secluded herself and is accused of acting out on that seclusion. Rashi tells us to teach us, because, If you see a sota who, in her shame, embarrassment, and guilt, If you see sota bekilkula, you should take a neder. No more wine. No more wine. Look what happened to this lush sota who used to drink and party and go out and flirt and gossip and mix and socialize and didn't have boundaries in her life. Look what it led to. Such a person will recoil and say, you know what? I need boundaries. I need discipline. I need self-control. I need to place a protective fence and make sure that I am not going to be tempted by such behavior. Rav Rav, uh, Volbe asks in his uh, commentary on the Parsha, Nishir Malaparsha, Ravoba asks, as do many others, really? You need to go to such an extreme? I don't understand. This individual, the future Nazir, observed what happened with the Sota. Oh, he's following it closely because everybody loves the latest gossip and tumult and matzav and raid. So what happens? He, Did you hear about the woman? Husband said, don't seclude yourself. She secluded herself and two witnesses saw. And so she was brought to the Kohen and everybody's on the edge of their seat and checking out all the blogs and the internet and Vas is nice and Yeshiva World News. What's the latest? What's the update with that woman? She drank the drink. What happened? Did she die? Did she have a, did she become pregnant? What happened with her? So why would such a person, Haroa Sota Bekokula, he reads the story and the story ends very uh, tragically. In fact, she was guilty and she blew up. She exploded. She died this heinous 
this really uh, terrible graphic death. So doesn't he say, ooh, I would never do that. Look what happened to her. Why does he have to go to an additional step? Why does he have to go to an additional extreme of, at that point, even taking a vow that he's not going to drink wine or great products, not going to cut his hair, not going to have contact with Tumah? Why does one have to go to that extreme? And Revolba says the following. It's true, Haroa Soto Bekakula. You know, it's true we see somebody who's brought down by their temptation. It's true we see the consequence of their behavior. And in some sense, that consequence of their behavior should inspire and motivate us not to follow in their footsteps because we too would have the same consequence. But that's not the psyche of man. That's not what happens. Instead, what happens to us is the opposite. What happens to us is we see that that person acted out. Until we know of somebody who's acted out, acting out in that way for us is foreign. It's an anathema. It's an impossibility. We don't know from someone who could do such a thing. It's pasnished. We don't do that. We don't know anyone who did do that. And therefore, it's outside our realm of experience. It's outside our realm of possibility. But the moment we're introduced to the fact that someone who did something that we're not supposed to do, no matter what happened to them as a consequence or result, but nevertheless, for us, it continues to be, now it's part of our experience. Now it's an image that we're familiar with. Now it's the realm of our possibility, and we have to contend with it. And therefore, we have to take an additional step. We have to go to an additional extreme, and we have to not just observe it and pledge that we're not going to do it. We have to go to an additional extreme that we're even going to take a step to prevent behaving ever in that way. We have to go to the additional extreme and the additional step of making ourselves more holy, more sacred, placing a real value, a real value, a driven life. And that's why one has to go to the extreme of the, of, the, of, the, of the Nazir, of taking on this pledge and this promise and becoming a Nazir. Okay, so what happens with the Nazir? They are prevented and they are forbidden from doing these three things. The Nazir can't benefit from a great product. The Nazir cannot have contact with Tumah, even their own family. Unlike the Kohen, by the way, who is charged with a level of holiness, but is allowed to become Tame to his own family, his immediate seven relatives, the Nazir is not. And lastly, uh, the Nazir does not cut his hair. I keep saying his. Can a woman be a Nazir? It's a trick question. Can a woman be a Nazir? Torah tells us explicitly. We just read it. Isho Isha kiyafli lindor nedir Nazir lazir Lashem. A man or a woman who takes this vow to serve Hashem by living this spiritually ambitious life of becoming a Nazir. Absolutely. A man or woman can take on Nazirus. Stam Nazir Shloshim Yom, if you don't uh, explicitly say how long you're taking on the vow, Stam, it lasts for 30 days, but of course it can be for longer or shorter as well. Uh, Nazirus is, uh, if you don't explicitly say 30 days, otherwise can be for more or for less. Pasuk Yud Beis, skipping the story of the Nazir. V'hizir l'Hashem es yimei Nizro, v'hevi keves ben shnaso l'Hashem, v'ayam amarishonim yiplu kitamei Nizro. We're not going to get into this year, but previously we spoke about the status of this Nazir. Is the Nazir holy? Or is the Nazir a cop-out? Yes, the Nazir's result is holiness. By living this ascetic life, this life of abstinence, the Nazir has elevated himself or herself. And yes, they achieve a certain level of holiness as a result on the one hand. However, however, they took a shortcut to get there. They didn't engage and embrace the physical world and elevate it. They instead tried to transcend it. 
They took a vow of abstinence from it. So the result is getting to a place of holiness, but they took a shortcut and a cop out to get there. And that's why on the one hand, the Torah refers to the Nazir as Kadosh, but on the other hand, the Nazir brings a Korban Chatas. They bring a sin offering. What was their sin if they're living a holy life? The sin was achieving holiness through a shortcut and a cop out rather than head on the way we were intended to by engaging the world, transforming and elevating it. So in this context, the Torah tells us in Pasuk Yudbez, he should dedicate to Hashem the days of his abstinence, and then at the end brings a korban. What's the korban? A keves ben shnasola asham. He brings an asham, a guilt offering, a sheep. This guilt offering we're talking about. And the first day shall fall aside. This is in the context of a nazir who actually became tamei and has to start the count again. So has to bring a korban asham, the sin offering of a sheep, a little sheepala, uh, in the first year, and uh, and then resumes the count from the beginning. And in this context, Rabbi Soloveitchik says the following in his Chumash. Rabbi Soloveitchik says the following. The Gemara in the Dharam on Daftes relates that the renowned Shimon HaTzadik never ate from the meat of a guilt offering offered by a defiled Nazir. The Nazir came to the Beza Mikdash, to the Mishkan, to the Kohen, and if the Nazir became Tameh, he had to offer this Asham. So the great Shimon HaTzadik, who was a Kohen, Kohen Gadol, relates that he never ate from the meat of the guilt offering of a defiled Nazir. He reasoned that, that someone with a lofty personality has accepted the vows of a Nazir would never become defiled, even inadvertently. The fact that it became defiled betrayed his insincerity. However, Shimon HaTzadik made one exception. So Shimon HaTzadik never wanted to eat the meat of such a korban because someone who was so committed, who had such aspiration to live such a life of sanctity, should have been so mindful, so conscientious, and so careful to have never become Tameh, even inadvertently. However, Shimon HaTzadik made one exception. And here the Gemara Nadarin tells us this story. He related that a very handsome Nazir once came to the base of Mikdash to offer the guilt offering. The Nazir came from Alexandria, a city where assimilation and secularism prevailed. He was dressed in contemporary clothing. Shimon HaTzadik asked him why someone of obviously assimilated background would undertake Naziris and observe Torah and mitzvos. Why would he exchange the immortal corrupt decadence of Alexandrian society for the rigidity and restrictions of religious lifestyle? The Nazi responded that he had not been raised in a religious home. He had never experienced purity in Kedusha. He was unaware of the sanctity of Yerushalayim. He was not interested in religious observance, but he had at times experienced a mysterious and explicable longing. He yearned for something more sublime, a noble existence with which he could identify. One day he looked at his reflection in the stream. The pure and incorruptible water permitted him to see for the first time his spiritual soul radiating through his body. Inexplicably, he was moved to his core. He immediately recognized that Alexandria was not his home. He suddenly longed to immigrate to Yerushalayim and to discover his spiritual roots. His evil inclination immediately erupted and attempted to dissuade him from traveling to Yerushalayim and adopting an alien logic-defying religious lifestyle replete with paradoxes and restrictions. When Shimon HaTzadik heard this, he kissed the young man on his forehead and willingly ate from his karbon. Man's higher will motivates the sinner to recognize hitherto unknown strengths submerged in the depths of his personality. These resources enable the sinner to engage in tshuva. His inner personality is slowly reconstituted. Said the Rav, inside every one of us is that pintle yid. Inside every one of us is that soul that longs for more. But it's covered by the guf, by the body. The body that distracts us through temptation, through appetite, through desire. This young man who was assimilated, secularized, whose values were corrupted, but at one moment that he had breakthrough, he had clarity, he looked in the water, kamayim panim upon him in that reflection, 
he saw something that made him want to his soul long for tshuva, and that's what led him. So Shimon HaTzadik, who generally rejected anyone, a Nazir, who had become impure and had to bring that offering because he said, how could you, with that striving, that goal of holiness, have allowed yourself to become impure, have lost a sense of consciousness and mindfulness? That Korban he accepted because he saw the sincerity of that young man and his experience of looking in the water and being transformed. That is Rabbi Salavichik telling this story. But I want to share with you another insight, and it comes from, I, I recorded it in my introduction to our latest Torah volume. The Dat Yitzchak Belazan Beis Medrash of our Bokraton Synagogue has now put out the third volume of Yadrim. Yadrim is our Torah journal. We have incredible essays in Hebrew and English by Rabbanim Gedoli Yisrael, community members. You can find the whole thing online. If you're living in Boka, you'll be able to pick up your copy of it for free. We're happy to be able to disseminate. All three volumes of Yadrim are fantastic. So in this year's introduction to Yadrim, I wrote the following. I wrote the following. Uh, uh, uh. The Gemara Nidaram, I'm skipping the first part, relates a fascinating story. A Kohen Shimon HaTzadik related he once had to eat the Korban Chatos of an impure Nazir who had accidentally contracted Tumah. A Nazir had come from the south needing a Korban offered for him. Shimon HaTzadik asked him why he had become a Nazir and he answered he'd been a shepherd and when he went to draw water for his sheep from a stream he saw his reflection when he saw how handsome he was and what he could have done with his good looks his Yetzir Hara was aroused. This impure Nazir, the former shepherd, continued, Amarti lo, I said to him, meaning he said to himself, Russia, wicked one, I swear I will cut off your beautiful hair for the sake of heaven. Shimon HaTzadik said that when he heard this, he stood up and kissed him on his forehead and he said, My son, may there be many more such people in Israel who vow to take on Naziris for such noble, noble motives. So the Gemara records parts of the story that Rabbi didn't uh, refer to is that he came from the south, he was a shepherd, he looked in the water and he saw his good looks, and he realized, I'm the most handsome man around. You know, I can go on any app and I can land any date that I want. And when he realized where his good looks could lead him, he cut his hair, he became Tameh, and he needed to bring this karbon for having violated his Nazirus. And, and Rav Shimon's response, Rav Shimon HaTzadik's response was not to reject him as he did so many others, but to give him a kiss and say, wow, what a beautiful story, what an incredible recognition, Halavai, there will be more like you. The Maharsha and his commentary in the back of that Gemara Nadarim, Rav Shmuel Aydel's wonders, what do I care where he came from? Why does the Gemara specifically record that he came up to Yerushalayim, he came up to the base of Mikdash, he came up to Shimon HaTzadik from where? From the south. The fact that he's a shepherd, the fact that he looked in the water, they're all important parts of the story. The fact that he was handsome, where do we care, why do I care where he came from? So the, uh, the Marsha answers as follows. The Gemara in Baba Basra, Dav Chafei, teaches, Yadrim. One who wants to become wise should face south. In the first two volumes of Yadrim, I gave, quoted two explanations of what that means. Why is it that if you want to become wise, you need to face the south? The Maharsha explains, the reason the Nazir, whom Shimon HaTzadik met, was able to do so successfully, combat his instinct and inclination, is because he came from the south. He had greater wisdom and understanding enabling him to anticipate the consequence of giving into his impulse. He saw his reflection on the water and wisely foresaw where his life was going, what was likely going to happen. He didn't like where it was headed, so he immediately became a Nazir. He anticipated danger and being from the south had the wisdom and forethought to take the necessary precautions to protect himself. So the Gemara says, You want to become wise? Boko Raton. Move to South Florida. Move to Eretz Israel, of course. But the Gemara always associates Chachamim Shebedarom, 
the wise who are in the south. What is it about being in the south that brings out a greater sense of wisdom? You've got to read the first two introductions to the first two volumes of Yadrim. But that's how the Maharsha understands this Gemara that Rabbi Salavitchik also refers to on our Parsha. That why does this Nazir, why did this young man come specifically from the south? Because because wisdom comes from those who dwell in the south, and it was his wisdom, his forethought, his insight, which all empowered and enabled him to recognize what was going to happen if he didn't take matters into his own hands and becomes this Nazir. And that's why while Shimon HaTzadik had rejected so many others, Shimon HaTzadik accepted this young man's behavior. Okay, we continue. The next section of our parsha is the story of Birchas Kohanim. Uah. Birchas Kohanim. We went from the Sota to the Nazir to the Kohanim who offered their priestly blessing. And this too we've examined several times before. So important, all these beautiful sections. Kosovarchu is B'nai Yisrael. So shall you bless the Jewish people. Amor Lahem. Here's what you need to tell them. Ko. So. It's a very unusual, form, it's a very strange formulation. Kosovarchu. Thus or this or here is how you should. Um, you should bless the Jewish people. What is this word ko a reference to? We mentioned previously, beautiful insight. The ko here is a reference to, to vani vanar necha ad ko. When it came to the Akedah, Avram Avinu says to Yishmol and Eliezer, you stay here, you stand here, and vani vanar necha ad ko, and the, uh, the, uh, my son uh, Yitzchak and I are going, are walking ad ko, we're going to our destiny. Ko here is a reference to destiny. Ko sevarchu is B'nai Yisrael. Ko is a reference to destiny, the destiny of the Jewish people we're going to. The destiny of, of the Jewish people. What is this word ko? We have it when Avram tells them, Bani ko, that Yitzchak and I are marching to our destiny. We also have when Hashem tells Avram, go outside and look up at the stars. And he says, Ko echa. This is what your offspring, your progeny will be like the stars of the sky. So there are many places that we see this word ko, chafhei, and here ko tzivarchu is b'nei Yisrael, perhaps is a reference and allusion to these other times and these other places, linking it all together, ko tzivarchu as b'nei Yisrael. What is the blessing the Kohanim are giving the Jewish people? The very blessing they're giving is the blessing of marching to our destiny, the blessing of the fulfillment of the bracha that was given to Avram to be like the stars, to go look outside. This is the blessing that that was given to the Jewish people, Amor, Amor Lahem. Amor Lahem. What do the words Amor Lahem mean? So Rav Levi Yitzchak of Berdichev says, go to Sefer Dvarim and you'll figure out what the words Amor Lahem. Amor, so shall you bless the Jewish people, Amor Lahem. Say to them, speak to them. What does Amor Lahem mean? So if you skip to the end of Parshish uh, Kisavo, Per Chavav, sorry, did I lose my place? Where is this? Skip to Perak Chavav in Dvarim. Yeah, that's the right place. It says, Vashem ha'emir ha'yom lios lo la'am segula kashardi berlach v'lishmar kol mitzvosav. Hashem has distinguished you today to be for him a treasured people, and he spoke to you. What does it mean, Hashem ha'emircha ha'yom? So Rav Levi Yitzchak Abaditcher, the Kedushas Levi says, the word ha'emircha means to love. It means to love. So Amor Lahem here also means to love. The Kohanim are not just meant to give a bracha, to utter words. The Kohanim are meant to shower their love on the Jewish people. Bi'ahava, that's why the bracha, they give their bracha, bi'ahava, with a sense of love. Only a Kohen with a mindset and a mentality, only a Kohen who's in a place that he can be give love should give the bracha. If they're not filled with love, if they're not ready to, to give a blessing of love, 
then they are ineligible and disqualified from giving this from giving this bracha. What's going on here really in this in this section? I have so much to say and so little time. So I'm going to start with, I wanted to pay tribute. I wanted to get through a bunch of commentaries, but I want to make sure that we don't miss this opportunity. The world, the Jewish world, uh, the YU world is, is uh, mourning the loss of Rabbi Dr. Norman Lamb. Zechron Levracha was the great president of Yeshiva University who passed away and uh, made great contributions to our community. And one of them is a collection of his amazing sermons. He was a tremendous darshan uh, in his time and in perpetuity. They've collected those sermons and made them available. And I thought in his memory, specifically during this week of, of his morning, I would share with you his insight, his sermon. It's from June 12th, 1976. June 12th, 1976. And here is what he, and here is what he says. The priestly blessing concludes on the theme of peace. V'yaseim l'cha shalom. It's the theme of the blessing of peace, that Hashem should grant us a sense of peace. The rabbis cherish this blessing above all others. We know it's the kli machzik bracha, the vessel which contains all blessing. All the previous blessings require peace as the context in which they can be effective. Yivarechecha Hashem, Rashi says, Yivarechecha Hashem is bimamun. You need resources. En kemach ein Torah. If you don't have money, you don't have a roof over your head, you don't have food to eat, you can't live a righteous, virtuous life. So the first bracha Hashem, the Kohanim give us is, Yivarechecha Hashem, mamun. Then, Yis Hashem panavelacha. We should have Torah. Yichuneka, Yisashem Panavelacha is Panavelacha is Torah, the light of Torah. We should have access to the light of Torah. And then the third bracha is that they shouldn't be in conflict. Our resources and our spiritual ambitions should be in harmony. V'yaseim l'cha shalom. So Dr. Lamb says that the last bracha, V'yaseim l'cha shalom, shalom, peace, is the klimachzik bracha. And therefore all the brachas can only bichal if you have peace. If you have machlokas, I don't care how many resources you have, I don't care how much health you have, but if you have animosity and you have, and you have conflict, if you lack shalom, then you can't experience fully or even partially these other brachas. Exactly what does this piece refer to? The Sifri gives us two alternative definitions. Rav Chininus Gan Kohanim says, Shalom Bebeisecha, peace in your home. And Rav Nasanti says, Zeshalom Yitzchus Beis David. It refers to the peace of the kingdom of the house of David. The difference is that Rav Chanina defines peace as domestic tranquility. Rav Nasan gives it a political national definition, the peace of the realm. What is surprising, writes Dr. Lamb, is that of these two possible interpretations is Rav Chanina who teaches domestic peace. After all, it's the same Rav Chanina Skan Kohanim who tells us in a celebrated passage in Avos, have a mispalo b'shlomashamachus, daven for the peace of the government, because if not for the fear of authority, people would would swallow each other alive. This is a very timely insight. If not for the government interaction and maintaining the peace, if not for peace in government, if not for ability to maintain and preserve the peace, people would riot and loot and swallow one another alive. Why then in the blessings of the priest does he suddenly turn inward and interpret the conclusion, concluding blessing as domestic peace? In other words, the same one who tells us in Avos, having mispala b'shlom ha'shom that you have to care about the peace nationally, politically, all of a sudden now, when we talk about this bracha of peace, says it's referring to domestic peace, peace in the home. Perhaps the answer is something that we shall all have to learn, painful though it is, says Dr. Lamb. Most of us have been reared on a noble vision, peace for all the world and in our own times. Woodrow Wilson, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, and every American president since have preached and strive for this vision. It's one of the most beautiful and inspiring themes to capture for the imagination of mankind. Of course, it's not new. It stems from and is secularized version of the great visions of the prophets of Israel, of Isaiah and Amos and Micha. It is they who taught, and the wolf shall lie down with the lamb, and they shall beat their swords in the plowshares, and nations will not lift up sword, and so on. The only difference is this. The prophets recognized that these are messianic dreams, that they'll be realized only with the advent of Mashiach. 
Yeshaya in chapter 2 introduces his vision with the words, Only at the end of days. We must not expect the fulfillment of these uplifting visions until the days of Mashiach. The secularized version, however, is not messianic, but is utopian. It is a modern phenomenon, the painting of an ideal world which is within the grasp of man. It teaches that we can, with the means available to us, create the perfect society, one of universal peace and justice for all men. The messianic version is one which sets an unreliable goal and inspires us to approximate it as best we can, but it knows that we cannot do so fully right now. The utopian dream is one which inspires us with impatience and drives us to expect realization here and now. Most of us who are passionately devoted to the cause of peace have assumed without further reflection it's indeed possible to achieve peace universally in our times. We are more utopian than messianic. Since the advent of the atomic age, it's become a working hypothesis of international relations, something which is acceptable beyond doubt. Indeed, consider the alternative. All of civilization reduced to a finite, to a fine atomic ash. Hence, universal peace is not only a distant goal, but an immediate necessity. And yet, how frustrating, how many wars have been fought and how much blood has been shed since Hiroshima and Nagasaki. What of Haninus Kanakonim is telling us is this, dream the dreams of Yeshaya of nation not lifting up sword against nation. Pray for the peace of the realm, but don't be unrealistic. Strive for these always, but without illusions as to their viability and applicability and realizability in the present or immediate future. Insofar as now, turn to the blessing of the priests. It is they who refer to that aspect of the good life which can attain in our grasp. The blessing of peace and the priestly blessing speaks of a peace which is more realistic and attainable. Shalom Secha. First, you have to strive for peace in your home between husband and wife, between parents and children, between brother and sister. Then you can strive for the larger aspects of peace, political, social, international, which will find their full realization at the end of days, the days of Mashiach. Not only Jewish tradition, but Jewish historical experience teaches us never to over-anticipate the end of days, the eschatological age, the days of Mashiach. Judaism teaches us to be aware of the fallacy of thinking the visions of the future are all at hand, just around the bend. This is the great utopian fallacy. There's a process of auto-suggestion and self-hypnosis at work. The facile illusion that turns utopian dreams into supposed realities only to disappoint and frustrate us to sow the seeds of disaster. And he goes on and on. But Dr. Lamb so beautifully describes that the reason he changes from heaven is which is true and we need to daven if not for a government maintaining and preserving peace we'd swallow man alive and yet when he talks here about the bracha of the of the kawanim the bracha of shalom the bracha of shalom begins in our home essentially what he's saying is if you want to bring peace to the world begin in your own home you want to solve the issues of racial discrimination of racial injustice which are so painful and wrong that every human being is created B'Tselem Elohim. I think it's the Teferis Yisrael in his commentary on the Mishnah points out, the Mishnah doesn't say Chaviv Yisrael Shinev B'Tselem. It doesn't say how sacred Jews are because they were created in the image of God. It says Chaviv Adam Shinev B'Tselem. Every human being, black, white, of every ethnicity, of every race, of every background, they're all created B'Tselem Elohim. Chaviv Adam. God loves every person and so should we. Everyone deserves. So if we want to solve what are these major problems and schisms that exist? It begins within our home. It begins within our home. It doesn't begin by not solving it, by mistreating, and then longing for some messianic vision, longing for something which is not right here around the corner, but rather shalom, the klimachzik bracha that we're looking for that will transform the world with the ultimate shalom of Mashiach, begins with shalom where? In our bias, the shalom bias that we practice, the messages that we teach, and the way that we treat other people. That is Dr. Lamb's message, that is his insight, that is his insight. It begins 
Peace must be built from the bottom up, not from the top down, he writes. We need visions, grand visions, holy visions, universal visions, and even if they cannot be realized at once, they still tell us in what direction we should be going, and they exercise a pull on us. We need not only visions, but blessings, and the greatest of all blessings is v'yaseim l'cha shalom. May he bestow upon us peace, shalom b'beisecha, peace in our homes, and it's peace that we wish for his neshama, Dr. Lamb's neshama, should go b'shalom, it should go in peace. His memory should be a blessing. And that is the message that permeates our Pasha from the story of the of the Sota and the story of Ma'al Ma'al, to how we treat the property of others and we don't abuse it. It's the story of uh, our longing for peace, peace and the sanctity with our homes and far beyond. I had a lot more to talk about, but as happens every single week, predictably at this point, we are out of time. So we're going to stop here, but wishing everyone a wonderful, wonderful day. If you're watching on YouTube, feel free to subscribe to the channel. Even if you're not, feel free to subscribe. Join us tomorrow morning, 8.15 for Masila Susharam, 8.45 for Living with Amuna, and 9 p.m. tomorrow night for Behind the Bima, an amazing guest for a really important and sensitive conversation. You'll find out more about it. Thanks for joining us, and have a wonderful day.